back today to talk to Yaffa Tegagni. Um, did I say that right, Yaffa? Tegagni. Tegagni. Um, and we're really delighted to have you. I came across an article you had written um, in the Canadian press about growing up Ethiopian and the like, and I felt it was it showed just such um, such interesting intellectual insights and I and I couldn't wait to talk to you so yeah thank you so much I'm also here with My Monica pleasure. Osborne yeah uh, who's uh, the a, a editor at the Jewish Journal she's also um, editor of the speech project of the Jewish Journal which uh, curates um, interesting articles on on speech and videos and the like it's really worth checking out I when I want to look at see who's been writing what that's what I do I go on the speech project of the Jewish Journal um, so uh, glad to have this discussion. Um, so Yafa it, um, was born in Canada. She um, is a recovering lawyer. She's become a real activist in the Jewish community. She's on the Canadian um, delegation to IRA, um, and uh, which is looks at the definition of anti-Semitism and how it's applied. You'll talk more about that. Um, you're active with uh, CJPAC, which is like sort of the Canadian version of APAC. And you're, you become a representative of the Ethiopian Jewish community. So um, there's a lot to explore. And I also love the stories about your father and so forth. So we can get, let's start with your, your background. Tell us a little bit about how you um, came to be an Ethiopian Jewish activist in Canada. Well, uh, I have to say, I think the role was just kind of placed upon me due to my background and uh, my family history and the family that I was uh, very fortunate to grow up in. I come, uh, my father was one of the first Ethiopian Jews to be brought to Israel in 1956. They were the first 20 students brought on a pilot project by the Jewish agency to learn modern Judaism and modern agricultural skills to bring back in an almost development project to Ethiopia. Um, and uh, my mother was born and raised an Ashkenazi Jew in Montreal. Um, we go back three, four generations in Montreal. We're Canadian Jews with roots in the Ukraine, but we're Canadian. And uh, my parents met in Israel in the 70s. Uh, my father was still probably only a handful of Ethiopians at the time. My mom was in, knew maybe 100 in the country. And um, my father essentially lobbied the Israeli government and worked with Mossad and put a lot of political pressure on the Israeli government with the help of uh, American activists, um, namely uh, Green and Berger and the American Association for Ethiopian Jews to pressure mm -hmm. Israel into bringing, into bringing um, the, to recognizing the Beta Israel as legitimate Jews and bringing them um, to Israel uh, under the right of return. Um, so that's the context I grew up in, uh, but I was born in Canada. My parents uh, moved here due to a lot of the discrimination and difficulty that they faced in Israel. So I was born and raised in Canada. Um, and, uh, and because I'm probably one of the first Ethiopian Jews born outside of Ethiopia or Israel, um, I've been privileged to have a unique uh, perspective uh, growing up here. And uh, and I hope to lend my voice. I, I, I've been asked recently, I think, with the political climate, especially in the last year after Black Lives Matter, um, there's been a real interest in hearing more diverse Jewish voices within our community and a real recognition of that, at least in Canada. And I've seen it in the States a bit as well. So um, I'd say that I've been uh, asked to engage 
uh, my voice and to help share my experience and that of my community within North America and how we can contribute both to uh, fighting anti-Semitism and having greater inclusion and understanding within our community. Mm, great. So um, right after the murder of George Floyd, there was something called the Harper's Letter. It was written by Thomas Chatterton Williams and it was signed by a group of intellectuals and it basically mostly liberals who and it basically stated that on the one hand we have a much needed racial reckoning in the United States that we have to deal with and we have to talk about on the other hand we can't do it in a way that stifles dissent that stifles argument that prevents us from being able to talk about these issues uh, citing data about police brutality and the like and um I've also heard that this, a similar process, not perhaps identical, has gone on in Canada, where you have both of these ideas sort of playing out in the public square at once, and wondered if how you would characterize that, how you see that as somebody who's had your unique upbringing. Um, well, first of all, I think that the American legal and political landscape is different from Canada. And I think Americans are learning that right now that they will uh, pay a lot of consequences for their concept of freedom um, and the constitutional limits of their freedoms. Where in Canada, for example, we've had hate speech legislation, for example, and it's very specifically um, geared at speech that incites violence. And it is it, it, and, and attacks minorities or racial minorities. There is ways that we've been able to limit speech and not have been, oh, well, it's just, you know, complete uh, uh, silencing of dissent or anything. There are ways of framing laws that, you know, um, help to curb violence and violence attack and spread anti-Semitism. So I think we've been able to address that here in Canada. And I think that this is now taking on um, the next steps of how we address that uh, in social media forums and on the internet. And I think that Canada is actually preparing legislation in draft right now to deal with that. And that's something that I think that um, even globally, we're starting to understand that we have to deal with. Um, so that is, I think, something that America is going to have to um, understand as well and, and reckon with, that if freedom of speech and dissent does not come at all costs and that all of our freedoms are limited in time and place and manner and context um, by the Constitution. And I think it's something that, um, I don't know if Americans will get there, but I think that it's something that is being addressed progressively in Canada and, and some European states. Do you have any sense about the ideological environment apart from the sort of legal structure about whether speech has become, and I don't mean constricted in the legal sense in Canada, but has been stifled that, that we're, are, are, do you feel like the conversation is as honest and open as it, as it needs to be around issues of race and racism, or do you feel like it's closed down since, um, since sort of, the, the post-George Floyd order has taken... So I think that depends what conversations you're having and with who. Um, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, there seems to be, at least at a federal level or on a like higher policy level, there seems to be, uh, let's, let's pay homage to, let's make a nod to this group or nod to that group in a very superficial way. And it's, you know, we see that a lot in Canada, um, not really addressing a lot of the real issues uh, with discrimination. On the other hand, you're seeing, and I've experienced forums and platforms online that are opening up discussions and honest discussions. Um, and I, 
honest discussions between a lot of groups um, that are being constructive and that I hope will become more mainstream as we're going forward. I think in the Jewish community for the first time, I've seen a lot of people addressing, um, you know, racism within our community and how are we going to be more inclusive? This is a relatively new thing. So um, I, I feel that more open spaces dealing with racism and more honest conversations are happening on a, a micro level, you know, but on the other hand, you have that same, you know, on the, on the macro policy level, as well as the insane hatred and vehement, you know, uh, anti-Semitism and racism that's also come out on the internet. So it's really hard to gauge. And I think that there needs to be really more targeted and more constructive research um, geared at understanding what is being said and what is the mainstream conversation and how those trends are changing and what the Jewish community is, how we're changing as well. One last question, I'm uh, turn to Monica. So, you know, one of the things we're, we're looking at is sort of woke ideology, if you will, could be, there's other names for it, you know, um, I'm not sure any of them are completely satisfactory to most people. And every time I use one name, I either have to explain it more than I'd like, or I have to um, apologize for its incompleteness. But um, so, but, but sometimes people know what we mean. And, and, and the question is, do you, I guess I would have for you is, do you see that as a problem on the Canadian scene? Is that, is that preventing, authentic conversations or do you think you know those are the conversations that's exactly how it should be I um I think that that type of where we are now versus where we are 10 years ago you know has allowed us to have the honest conversations I think that woke ideology perhaps I'm not of the generation I'm not a millennial um but for me I find it quite enlightening that people are having this level of conversation about these things on the flip side Obviously, we are seeing unintended consequences of this and we are seeing people with, you know, having to engage or take a position with high moral authority about stuff in order to comply with some vision of who they are or their identity or social norms or groups. And this is where the problem lies. The problem is, you know, will I be rejected if I don't hold a very uh, moral stance about something or I'm not a perceived moral stance, frankly, um, as to, you know, and you don't want young people to feel like that, but it's also normal that young people in their 20s feel like that. That's the time in your life where you are the most passionate about things and think you can change. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a flip side to both. I think that the conversation is progressing and we are under starting to understand now the uh, unintended consequences of this wokeness and where the limits, the differences are between actual progress, human rights, equality, and just, you know, taking a stance on Facebook and, and what the negative consequences of that are as well. So it's happening. I think the shift, the awakening is happening. We're starting to understand the consequences of what's been going on. Uh, uh, lately. Monica? Thanks, Yafa. Um, so you you described yourself, um, among many other things, as a recovering lawyer, right? Um, and I, I describe myself as a recovering academic, um, you know, and I think there, there are some similarities there. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because, um, you know, in the legal world, just like the academic world, probably more so in the academic world, the topic and idea of intersectionality 
is a big thing, right? And, um, you know, I am a former, former English professor. I've taught critical theory. I've taught critical race theory. And I've taught intersectionality as a very useful way of understanding the ways in which all of our competing and, um, you know, not competing identities intertwine. Um, you know, but as you describe other elements of your background, it seems to me that, you know, if we're talking about intersectionality, you kind of sit, um, you know, at, at the center of this in terms of all of the different facets of your identity. So um, I would love to hear you just talk a little bit about, um, you know, whether you see intersectionality in the way we use it today, the way we talk about it as a hindrance or a help or both, and then whether you see that, um, you know, manifesting in different ways in Canada as opposed to the United States. So I, I think the theory in itself was necessary at its point in time to kind of frame these conversations and to maybe under, have people have more empathetic understanding of other people's realities. Um, I think uh, the issue and where we'll go with identity is that, you know, identity is not just visible identities, you know, we intersectionality tends to focus on visible identities, and we understand that, but there are identities that shape us that are much greater than just our visible identity, and that can skew that, that presumption, the presumptions of intersectionality completely off. Um, for example, my experience, and I have to say, yes, I've had some discrimination, but I'm extremely privileged to live in Canada, where I have been granted great equality in my life. I've been privileged to have opportunity and education. I've had a lot more privilege than a lot of other people in many ways. So it doesn't inherit, I'm not inherently, um, you know, uh, um, uh, excluded from the power structures because of my intersectional identity as a woman. As I've had to fight maybe a little bit harder on some fronts and in some situations, but I don't think that I've grown up in that reality. And I think that we're also kind of moving past it because if you look at the imagery and everything that we're seeing um, just in pop culture and everything, we're, we're, we are moving past it. Like, where does this end? The question is, where does this end? When have we reached the goal? When have we reached the goals of equality? When have we reached, you know, what are our, our, our barriers, our metrics for understanding what our successes and when can we appreciate those successes? And when can we take the time to acknowledge those successes within the context of still being critical and moving society forward? Um, I, I think you have to have both those conversations. I don't mm -hmm. think the, the situation is the same in... Um, uh, in Canada versus the US, the Canada, Canada has a very different uh, demographic landscape. We did not have the same history of slavery. Um, we don't have that kind of, I hate to say it, but that original sin of the United States, you know, formation. Um, a lot of Black people here in Canada uh, mostly are immigrants from Caribbean, Africa, other places. It's not kind of, it, we have it, but we don't have the same demographics that the problem plays out in the same way or to the same level. We have different problems with immigrant communities, with Aboriginal communities, I'd say is one of our, our biggest uh, um, issues that we're trying to address today. Um, so yeah, it is different, but I, I think that it was necessary at a time, but again, we have to contextualize the conversation and understand who's using these terms, where they're being used, how they're being used, and are they being misused? And in the halls of power, are they being misused and manipulated and how? Um, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think you really nail it when you, you say that what mm -hmm. intersectionality doesn't really address are 
identities or facets of identity that aren't visible. Um, you know, and especially if we're talking about something like Jewish identity, you can't always look at someone until they're Jewish, you know? So, and I, you know, I think that's why that's, you know, I'm curious what, what you, your thoughts about this are, but, um, you know, my sense is that that is why intersectionally has been an issue for Jewish women even, right? Because there's this other invisible facet of their identity that isn't addressed by intersectionality. Um, you know, and I think sometimes the, the, you know, the facets that are invisible or aren't addressed end up getting pushed into the, um, the oppressor category. And I know you, I, I read some, something you wrote or something you said, um, you know, you talked about the idea of just, you know, being, um, you know, as a Jewish woman of color, being lumped into these two categories simultaneously, right? You're both, um, you know, oppressor and oppressed simultaneously, you know, which is this bizarre kind of existence that intersectionality claims to account for, but doesn't. It, it doesn't. And I think, I hope as we go forward and what I learned a long time ago, or at least I, in my twenties, um, was that, you know, there's a principle in Judaism, kamocha. You treat others as you want to be treated. And that if people embody that really in their thoughts, in their daily lives, in their interactions and stopped with the and stop trying to categorize, because I think that even on a psychosocial level, we will hopefully we we can maybe train our brains to go there and start really seeing people as people and not categories of people. And I believe, you know, like Saplovsky, there's there's theories that we are hardwired in this way for whatever, you know, uh, historical reasons. But we can undo the way we think about others and start to see people as just the, you know, the, the entirety of all their identities whenever you meet somebody. And it's just so much that's where we need to be going, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, society catches up, um, society moves slowly. It doesn't, social change doesn't happen in, you know, even 10 years, it happens slowly. It's happening faster now, but it happens slowly. So we there's everything serves its purpose at the time and contributes to the conversation going forward. So hopefully we will move past this and that my kids, you know, who are a quarter Persian Jewish and a quarter French Canadian and a quarter this and a quarter that, like nobody will care and they'll just be people and that will be the end of it. And we can all <laughs> just move on from this. Yeah. That, that would be good. I want to ask you a little bit about anti-Semitism. Um, you know, so the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values recently put out a white paper on uh, we call the critical social justice ideology and anti-Semitism. And, and the thesis is that, that whenever you have an ideology that claims sort of inviolable truth, in other words, it's not, it's not the problem, like we can all agree that there is uh, injustice embedded in society, but when you start to say um, injustice is embedded in society and I have, a, I have a singular claim to be able to describe it, you sort of open the door for more radical ideas to come in, you're saying, okay, we get to define society for you. And therefore you're able to sort of push through a oppressor versus oppressed narrative. You're able to sort of define who has privilege and who doesn't for society. You, um, and you, you create the, the conditions in which anti-Semitism may be able to thrive, a more illiberal condition for all people, including Jews. But when there's a liberalism in society, that tends not to be good for Jews. So um, do, you, do you see that? And 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 or do you think that I well, maybe we're overstating the case for anti-Semitism and its relationship with this ideology? 
Absolutely not. And I think that, you know, how critical social justice theory or intersectionality theories come about as conversations in academic circles that are tempered with research and discussion and and parameters versus how they're played out uh, in the mainstream popular society are two very different things. And that's with, you know, most concepts and theories and and, uh, philosophies. So um, in terms of anti-Semitism, I think that you know, I, I thought about this a lot recently. And I was like, why, why is this happening? Like, why is Israel at the forefront of congressional debate? Why are we, why are we, why is Israel being evaluated on a higher standard than everybody else when it comes to human rights? Why is Israel's relationship with the United States always in the media versus Israel's relationship with Saudi Arabia, for example, or Egypt or any other country that, you know, perpetrates a variety of human rights uh, violations across the world and that receives tremendous amount of military aid as, as well. Why? I just can't, I can, still can't wrap my head around it. So at the end of the day, I have to come back to exactly what you said. We create or the the discussion um, the mainstream discussion leads to this creation of a of a of a scrutiny uh, on Jews and Israel and our relations and our everything um, and our society beyond that of everyone else. And I, I can't understand why. And the only thing I can come down to is this historical relationship that Jews have with the world, which is anti-Semitism, unfortunately. And it it just keeps coming back. And I think that we have this relationship because we are the eternal minority and because we have been an eternal global minority for history. And everybody has had some interaction, knowledge um, of a Jewish community, where they're from, some terrible story in history, somewhere ever, because, you know, that's, and, and that's unique perhaps to Jews, maybe Armenians, certain groups, but it is really unique to Jews historically. And I realized as a black person, you know, Africans don't understand racism. They only understand racism when they're brought to somewhere else where they are a minority. It's always relational as a minority. So because we're a perpetual minority, I think, I don't know how we avoid this. I don't know what the right things, you know, how we combat it, how we change the conversation, because it doesn't seem to matter how religious or secular or integrated or powerful that we are. It seems to be this continuous um, theme. Uh, an, ex- an experience that we have as Jews uh, globally. And I think that we just have to be conscious and active and always be active in our, you know, in our relationships, not just with people in the halls of power, but every day who we speak to as Jews, because we are Jews, everyone, whatever you say is projected on the group and to continue to be uh, a light to, to a light amongst nations, a light amongst people, focus on the positive in all your interactions and, and try and uh, contain or at least manage the, 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 the vocabulary of the conversation that's happening. Monica, you have other questions? Uh, I, go ahead. No, go ahead, David. I, I, I just one follow-up, but do you see that there's any, the, the current sort of, uh, great awakening, as it's been called, is adding any fuel to the fire there? Or do you think it's just just anti-Semitism is always going to exist and it really doesn't matter what the what other conversations are taking place? I think that anti-Semitism is, um, unfortunately, I do think it will 
exist in some level in some place. I don't think you can control the thoughts and, and, and actions of all people. The question is, it's, it's kind of like, like the virus, you know, at times it's low, at times it's high. The question is, is it affecting our, our medical system? Are people dying from it? It's endemic. It's endemic. It's here. The question is, how is it affecting people um, mm. on the streets and families? Is it mean that we're subject to violence? Like we've seen in the last few months after the, the last conflict where we saw an increase in uptick in violent acts towards Jews. Are we safe? Are we not safe? Is, you know, the, 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 you know, are we safe in our society? Like in Canada, I'd say we're relatively, you know, we're okay here, we're, we enjoy rights, we're protected, or, you know, at the worst expression, something like Nazi Germany, which we've experienced all that, you know, in history. So it's, we, anti-Semitism is a gauge of society. It's a, it's a, you know, the canary in the coal mine. Where are we? What, how are people reacting to each other? Are we getting violent? And is, 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 is ethnic nationalism or divisions or polarization becoming a violent problem? Like, where, where are we? So um, now I think that we're starting on an uptick. Um, I think that the conversation is starting to get and to turn um, a little bit more violent than we're perhaps have seen at least in my generation. Um, you know, we grew up in a time of relative relative peace, um, and but we're starting to see it for the first time that like people I know are on the street getting harassed and 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 don't feel safe uh, wearing a kippa. Or look what happened in France over the last. France has been terrible over the last uh, you know 15, 20 years even. So yes, it, it is getting worse right now. Um, and until, unfortunately, though, until we really deal with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which we really do have to deal with, and we have to start thinking outside the parameters of, of what's been before, there's a new generation of Israelis and new generations of Palestinians. There might be new ideas. This is not an unfixable problem that needs to perpetuate and continue forever and ever. We need to deal with it. Um, you know, you know the, this, the whole idea of violence is something that I return to again and again, you know, in my, my own work, it's something that I deal with. And, you know, I think it, it probably goes without saying that, you know, every time there is, you know, a, a, you know, a, a social movement, a movement that is fighting for change, um, you know, you said something a second ago about, you know, the idea of social change happening, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I think sometimes these movements and, you know, you know, activists and different movements, they want that change overnight, right? And if they can't have it immediately, if they can't have it overnight, it seems like that is when there's a propensity for violence. Um, but I, I, I'm curious what you would have to say about this because, you know, again, like the, the, the Israel-Palestine issue is something we've been dealing with for a long time. It's something that we'll be dealing with indefinitely, um, you know, especially if we don't find new idea ideas and, as you say, find ways to think outside of the box. Um, but I guess the question, a question for me, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, is, um, you know, to what to what degree is 
the violence we're seeing now directed at Jews. I mean, to what degree is that connected to social change that we're not seeing overnight? Because, you know, from an American perspective, it seems that to me anyway, it's been wrapped up in a lot of the progressive movements. It's been intertwined with them and yet it's this separate issue. Um, you know, so I've just kind of been struggling to figure out how how the pieces fit together. Um, well, I don't even I, know if that's a fair question. I, I think, it, first of all, I think it's it, it, it comes from both and it's always come from both sides, right? It, we, and historically, it's never been, right? We've had violence against from both sides of the, the left or the right or however right. the construct is. Yes, maybe now Jews who, who, who historically have, at least in contemporary history, have felt a home within the Democratic Party or have felt safety within the comforts of the left and liberals and, and have voted left. All of a sudden, this is new. This is a new experience for us because we saw it as, you know, you had, you still had the neo-Nazi rallies in, in North Carolina, whenever it, it was, it was coming there too, but we, we didn't, we didn't know us. We had never felt it. Ask Jews of Russia, you know, who, who grown up in communism, they understood it from the left also, but for us, it was a new experience. So, you know, maybe it's a bit more pronounced in our head. I, I can't tell you statistics and where those acts are coming from right now, or, you know, maybe it's because it's more visceral and it's online for the first time that we're seeing it um, coming from our own social circles and our own political parties that are, you know, things that we typically, you know, Jews typically aligned with very progressive movements and values and to feel turned on um, and to feel like you've lost your political home. And I, I've, I've, I've worked and spoken to so many young people who feel like this, who really don't understand how they can be allowed, how they're allowed to be Jewish, allowed to support Israel and their families while still remaining in their progressive political, cultural, artistic, student, educational circles and, 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 and still stand beside other rights movements. And we shouldn't have to be put in that situation. You know, it's not, uh, we're just, we're people. And if anything, we've contributed to a lot of, you know, human rights development and work and law. I mean, the entire, uh, the entire international human rights framework is, was based on what happened to Jews. You know, people forget this, but the Nuremberg, everything is like, who, 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 who do they, you know, how can people turn and call us white? You know, right. if, if the actual term Aryan was used to define uh, us as other, as non-Aryan, how are we white all of a sudden? It's just mind boggling, but people don't know history. People don't know, you know, they just, they, they read memes. Um, and we're in a time of post-truth and miseducation and, and, and false news. And, you know, um, the question is, how are we as a community going to stand up to that? Um, you know. Would you talk about the kind of conversation we just had? Do you talk about that with your friends or when you gather in a Jewish community? Is this the kind of conversation you're having now? Or are we just sort of... Um, doing something outside your oh. normal experience? Oh, I mean, actually, I'd say that this last year, I've had uh, far more conversations like this. Um, I've became, I've become more engaged online, and I've found different communities um, of people um, that are like minded, and that want to have these forums and these spaces because and share this experience, whether it's, you know, on Clubhouse or on, you know, we have different groups, Jews of Color Canada, 
Um, lots of things. So I'm having these conversations, but I'm also at the center of this conversation. My identity puts me at the center of this conversation. So I don't know if this is what's happening in, you know, um, a lot of, of, of spheres, but uh, I went to a lecture uh, two nights ago by uh, Rudy Rochman. I don't know if you guys know him. He's, he's an advocate, yeah. but like, you know, he's a 28 year old Israeli that's having a progressive conversation and trying to ignite that new conversation in Jewish circles and in Jewish mainstream. Um, so I think the seeds are there, I hope. One last question about this. Um, one of the things that I'm playing with and I'm writing about, but I'm still, you know, figuring it out in my own head about what I think is, um, does the Jew, you know, I've been involved mostly on the Jewish left. I mean, I still am much more comfortable and feel at home on the left in general in society than I would on the right. And certainly with sort of a, a populist right, I, I would feel fundamentally alienated. Yet as sort of the, the left has become more ideological, I'm increasingly not at home on the le American left either. And, and so, okay, so what does one do? And it seems to me that there might be an opportunity to start to piece together sort of a center left to center right coalition that above all stands for sort of liberal values, liberal democratic values, and that those issues become more important than the sort of um, whatever else divides us center left to center right, that at first and foremost, you have to take care of those fundamental values. And um, that's sort of where I'm, I'm starting to move in that direction. But I'm, I'm wondering what you think of that. And I don't know, it might be slightly different in the Canadian scene. So, um, you know, love to get that nuance as well. So I, I completely agree with you. And I think that the, well, the Canadian political scene is different. Um, I, I, I hope and I'm thinking or people are hopeful that Biden is a bit of that, um, is a bit of that voice that kind of, you know, is that traditional democratic um, value system, but unfortunately, there is the fraction within the Democratic Party that's taking it a new route. But that doesn't mean that they'll become the mainstream, um, the mm -hmm. mainstream ideal. And there might be, you know, um, there might be more and more people that feel like us and that become more supportive of a more centrist position. But I do not foresee the uh, American political system. Uh, developing any new political parties of any significance. Unfortunately, um, I think it's just, you know, it's far too, the systems are far too entrenched um, the way they are. Uh, on Canada, in Canada, it is a little bit different because we have a parliamentary system. So we have a multi-party system. We still have our main parties, liberal and conservative, but we also have the new Democrats and we have a green party. And we've actually recently had the emergence of an extreme right-wing party called the PPC, uh, extreme conservative party, which we never really had. And they gained slightly bit more, um, more gains in this last federal election. So, um, Canada, definitely. I think that, you know, uh, uh, our liberal party, which, you know, I guess would be like the Democrats, but not really, would still be, you know, far more liberal than anything that the Democrats actually are. You know, it's our general, our general, our country generally is far more left leaning, I would say, if you're looking on a global scale than, than the states. Um, you know, we have um, socialized medicine we have, which is a pillar of Canadian society that people are really, really hold on to as a value of Canadian society. We have much greater mm -hmm. social welfare. Um, you know, we have public education, subsidized daycare. 
um, subsidized university, uh, you know, it's, it's really a different starting point. Um, mm. So you can mm. come to Canada if you're interested and visit. <laughs> it I sounds actually like spent it. last yeah. year, I spent last year in Canada and um, it, you know, it was so interesting to see because I just kind of assumed that the left and the right were really the same thing, but um, you know, so many of the things that, you know, the Democrats are, are still fighting for in the U.S. are a starting point in Canada. I mean, it's already, it's like old news, you know, it's, it, it was, it was an interesting year. You know, when there's all this discussion about Roe v. Wade being challenged in the States, like, I mean, I think that our conservative party at times has tried to take a similar strategy to the Republicans and play to this space and kind of, but it's never really been an issue. Like it's not an issue. I wouldn't say it's a great issue that's at threat here, that it is a right at threat in Canada or that it's like, we're, we're that conversation is not a mainstream conversation. And the fact that it's still a conversation in the United States is very mm. shocking to me and other Canadians sometimes like, really, this is America. Like, yeah, you know, um, this should be in, entrenched already. These are things that should be a past discussion, but they're not. Um, and, you know, America has its own demographics and political destiny and um, way of dealing with, you know, uh, its population and representation. And uh, it's definitely very different than Canada. We also only have like 35 million people here. It's not the same. Right. It's not the right. same. Right. Base. Big landmass, but a lot fewer people. You know, I, I just one last. I've I've sort of seen some of uh, Justin Trudeau's comments that almost feel like pandering to me around gender and gendered language and so forth. And uh, I mean, they come across to me as really silly. And I I don't. It would it would I, I it, like you would never see maybe a mainstream Democrat, maybe AOC or the like, but most mainstream Democrats would never. Um, make such comments yet obviously he's still electable in Canada um you know what 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 does that come from what's he trying to do there um you know uh he's a politician like any um and he thinks I think that he says what he thinks people want to hear um, but it did come up. There was a lot of criticism in this election that there wasn't any constructive policy or successful policies to back up a lot of the statements that he made and in his first, first, in his first election and that in the last six years, he hasn't actually successfully moved the needle on any of these um, progressive policies that he's claimed to support, um, most notably, and um, I think two things in the newspaper yesterday. So we've declared a national a uh, day of mourning for the residential schools, the children of the residential schools. And now it is, a, you know, in Canada, it's a national day. Um, and he was, you know, he was caught surfing on vacation in, in, in BC when he was invited by the chief of a, I, can't, I don't remember which tribe in, uh, in BC to come attend a ceremony that day. You know, he also uh, we had there was a conflict and uh, there was a, a big conflict with uh, uh, the former minister of justice who was native. You know, that was that was part of the last, you know, a scandal. And, and ultimately he pushed her out of caucus. He pushed her out of the party because she challenged him um, 
on a uh, on a corruption scandal. And so anytime that there's been any woman in power here and note, we did have a black Jewish woman as head of a federal party in this last election um, of the federal Green Party. And she was also recently resigned because she couldn't handle the amount of scrutiny and criticism and uh, what a difficult from within her own party and uh, in general. So it's pretty obvious. I don't think that anybody here is, you know, falling for it necessarily like we know you know, but we also, you know, as Canadians, we tend to like our reputation. You know, we like that he says these things globally and that we look like the nice, peace-loving, you know, Canadians that have it all together and that, you know, everything is fine up here. Like, we're doing okay, but it's not perfect. That's yeah. great. Well, you're such a unique voice. Um, and I'm so glad someone shared an op-ed that you wrote that led me to sort of track you down a little bit, which um, wasn't that easy, but I'm, gl I'm glad I, we found you. And I, I would, I hope that we can find other ways of um, of having you in, a, in conversations that we have here about, about identity, about ideology, about the current moment. Um, and uh, really appreciate your, your time and your, your thoughts. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy to have engaging conversations on uh, these subjects. So it's my pleasure.